are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are Kendra Holtmore, PhD candidate at Boston University. And if I could be a scientist, I would be a quantum scientist. Rachel Jackson, rabbi at Agudas Israel Congregation, Hendersonville, North Carolina. And if I were a scientist, I would choose to be a geneticist. Zach Jackson, UCC pastor in Reading, Pennsylvania. And for most of my life, I wanted to be an astrophysicist. So we're going to go with that one. Ian Benz, associate professor of elementary science education at UNC Charlotte. And I could pick any science profession. I probably would have been a paleontologist. Yeah. I like dinosaurs. Um, okay, so today, in 2012, today's <laughs> guest joined the University of North Carolina at Charlotte as the Carol Grotness Belk Distinguished Professor of Bioinformatics and Genomics. He originated the field of mapping pathogen genetic data in concert with geography and host animals. He was a tenured faculty member in the College of Medicine at The Ohio State University, where he serves as a national principal investigator in the Tree of Life program of the NSF. He's advised the Obama White House, the Pentagon, and testified to both houses of Congress. I'm very pleased to welcome back to our show, Dr. Dan Channies. So welcome back, Dan. Thanks very much. Welcome back, Dan. I'm really proud of that. I felt like I read that very well. (laughs) We're very proud of you too, Ian. Thanks, guys. (laughs) Well, thanks for coming back, Dan. Um, Oh, my pleasure. The last time you were on for those... Um, who are not longtime listeners, was March 18th, 2020, way back in episode 30, um, back at the beginning of this newfangled pandemic where um, I don't even know if we were using that word quite yet. No one really knew in the public really what was going on. I feel like that was at the time when we were just talking about like two weeks of lockdown to contain this, to flatten the curve so that we can get back to normal. Uh, President Trump was talking about going back to church on Easter, which um, have it. I am a pastor who just went back to in-person church on Easter. He just got the wrong year. It just, uh, it took a couple extra months to get there. And um, a lot of what you said in that episode sounded extraordinary at the time, but now seems commonplace. I remember asking you if, um, what if this virus becomes airborne? And you said, oh, it is airborne. I was like, wait, what? It is? And then, sure enough, now everyone basically agrees that it is airborne. Um, we were debating back then about where it came from. And you said, ah, th- those other things, those are just red herrings. It, it came from bats. And there we go. Now we know. Um, you had predicted it was going to, we were still going to be talking about this in a year. And here we are a year later talking about it. So we're really happy to have you back on. Um, to help untangle a lot of where we are today, the state of things, and what's coming up next. Well, great, great. Yeah, there's certainly been a number of chapters. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. This probably isn't how you imagined your 2020 was going to go when it started. Well, there's there something about it. I, I've been through a few of these, and this one from the beginning felt very different. It's just a matter of getting that through our heads. And it came through our heads at different periods of time, I think. <laughs> <laughs> can, I, can we expand on that? What? You so like this one felt like, different. Look, Why at, is look that? at 2009 H1N1. We all still traveled. And I wasn't allowed to say stay home from work. Um, communications people where I worked, when, when they thought the business community wouldn't like it. And so we had to say... Uh, cover your cough. That's about, about <laughs> all we could say in 2009. <laughs> I went to China in 2009. You know. hmm. Oh. Yeah. Well, I think you also said in the last time we had you on the use of the word quarantine, that people were very careful in the use of that word as well. I, I yeah, we couldn't say that. And they weren't going to close the schools, so we couldn't say social distance either. Um, that was the euphemism if we were going to say something. But uh, yeah, yeah. And now, like, the cat's out of the bag. I mean, people, we use those phrases all the time now. Yeah, yeah. This one turned out very different. Do you feel a little bit like a prophet? 
no, I mean, uh, it's easy to be wrong too. Uh, I, I mean, some of us have even talked about being guilty about not being noisier. You know what I mean? So, mm. um, I did testify to Congress. I, I don't know how well some of us supposed to tell. In many ways, you do sound a lot like the Hebrew prophets. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this. The state of things as you see them right now, um, where would you place us now compared to last year? I think vaccines and the rate at which we produce them and their efficacy is a is a just a triumph. I mean that that has been amazing, um, and anybody who doubts uh, our ability to you know work together and and come up with solutions and multiple solutions um, in case one didn't work um, should, you know, not have much to argue about anymore. It's just been uh, tremendous. And now the rollout is, is, has been a challenge, but in the United States, we're doing a pretty good job. It, you know, remains a challenge, but uh, we're doing better than other parts of the world. And there are parts of the world like Israel, they're doing better than us. So um, all this is work. <laughs> I was reading something, uh, yesterday or a couple days ago that uh, was just an article about, um, what was the phrase? They said something like hygiene uh, performance, no, hygiene theater. That's what it was. Um, And that like what we know now about uh, transmission being airborne and that surfaces are not really that, they don't play as much of a role as we thought they did a year ago, but that people continue to like clean, like nonstop surfaces and that it like makes people feel good, but it's actually just this like hygiene theater, like performativity. I'm, it seems like, I don't know, it might just be where I am currently, but it seems like that's going to be something kind of hard to let go of because it is good to like wash your hands and stuff like that. But how, I'm just curious, and this doesn't just just have to be uh, for Dan, but it is like mostly directed at Dan, I guess. Like, how are we gonna stop like wasting money on cleaning protocols that we don't have to do? Is it a good idea to stop all of that? Is there something valuable in signaling cleanliness? It, it, to me, it seems a little bit shallow, I guess. Um, but I understand that there could be value in it. Like, what what do you predict for the the coming months and like the next year? Yeah, well, you're doing a, you're doing a lot. You're just not stopping SARS-CoV two transmission with cleaning surfaces. SARS-CoV two, the vast majority of it, as we covered, is airborne transmission. You know, respiratory droplets. But there are pathogens that are transferred on surfaces, bacterial pathogens, and so forth. So you know, like food hygiene is largely dependent on surface contamination and so forth. So or water contamination. So that's that you're going to have better food hygiene, which is always a good thing. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that, that makes sense. But like all the extra stuff, you know, like wiping down the like desks or whatever, like, I guess there's value in that. Like kids maybe won't get as sick with other things, but um, I, I guess part of what was interesting to me about that was that there's been so much money, especially when you're looking at different, um, like public schools or just other organizations that could be putting all that money into like uh, air filters and stuff like that. But they're spending so much money on cleaning supplies. And there is like, obviously, you know, like what you're saying, that does help for a lot of other things. But it's just like, where do we like find the balance of actually, if the priority right now is COVID, um, it makes sense to do more of the airborne precautions. But what about like, five years from now uh, because yeah well I think that's a great question and it's probably a matter it's going to like mask will probably become a matter of personal preference going forward and schools are regulated so that won't be per- personal preference but it'll probably be you know find some reasonable balance going forward but once we you know we're humans once we started doing something it's it's hard to reverse course right so it's right. just a human nature thing I think is there such a thing do you think um as too much usage of these things? Um, I, I've not heard of that, but, uh, you know, if it's like anything, if it's preoccupying you so you don't do other things or you're burning yourself, you know, like there are people who wash their hands too much and don't wreck their skin, you know. Mm-hmm. I think those things are... 
Right, right. This idea of antibacterial, right? That we're using all these antibacterial wipes for everything. Oh. Are we just making stronger bugs? Yeah, I don't have any particular expertise on that. um, I I think these, you know, antibacterial products certainly do provide some of the selective force that I think that's demonstrated. I have to look up the paper that is driving antimicrobial resistance, but I'm just using intuition here, that's probably nothing compared to overuse of antibiotics, uh, which, you know, Hmm. we use in our own bodies and we use wantonly in agriculture. And that's just the concentrations being used in those settings is, is tremendous. So I think, yeah, we'll, we'll come back to not so much caring about over cleaning, but hopefully caring about other problems and to shift gears a little bit here, think of, you know, antibiotic resistance was, was the, you know, the crisis that we've forgotten about, uh, cancer screenings haven't been done. You know, people haven't gotten their teeth cleaned. And, and so there's all this neglected maintenance and, and, and hmm. refocusing we're going to have to do. You know? So when you think of like, you were being that we kind of talked a little bit about like classroom spaces and things like that. You know, I remember back last spring, so a year ago in conversations about what could the fall look like at, so at our university, Dan, at UNC Charlotte and like, even in lab spaces or classroom spaces, you know, many classrooms may have, you know, access to like a, you know, a staplers or whatever that students could pass around or anything like that, that could be communal supplies. There was all this talk of, well, we couldn't have that, you know, the concerns around, we can't have communal supplies in your classrooms and stuff like that. Do you think, is that still a concern? I mean, cause you know, our university is going to be back primarily face-to-face in the fall. Most universities probably will be. Most schools are going that route as well. I mean, is that something that you think that teachers and others will have to clean the desk spaces and stuff like that in between classes and things like that? Yeah, I'll have some thoughts on my own, but you know, bear in mind, I, I'm not authorized to speak about university operations by any means. So, right. um, just These are just generic thoughts. I think we can be reasonable about it. I think people are going to like you know more personal space, uh, and um, having their own things. Um, and I'd like to work in a clean environment. Uh, that, mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't, I, I, I bet the cases of SARS-CoV trans, trans, uh, transfers based on shared staplers are almost none, though. Let's put it that way. Right. So I wanted to go back to this vaccine question a little bit, if you may. Um, you seem very, very optimistic which I think is wonderful, recognizing that um, as a whole, our country is doing well, right? And in some places, adequate, some places, some populations, very poor, but as a taken as a whole, we're doing well, right? Our um, My social commentary is that there's certainly issues in with racial justice um, surrounding that. But if we take the country as a whole, we're certainly doing better than than others and certainly doing better than what we were doing. So when we look at vaccines, one of the things that we're facing now, and I was listening to an NPR story about this, was saying that very soon we're going to have a surplus. But we're still not at a place where we're reaching this generalized herd immunity, whether or not that herd immunity is 75% or 85% or even 90%, um, we know that it's above 70. Like comfortably, we know that above 70 is where we need to go. And we're at you know 25% looking at this question of having a surplus. Um, and for me, part of what, when I look at that, part of the ration, the reason for that is our disparities in terms of equity but then there's also a question of there's a lot of people that just aren't going to take it. And what do you think as a scientist that we can do to encourage us yeah. getting to that place? Well, I think several things, and I think it's going to be patchy. Um, and that's the problem with with the herd immunity question is – Surpluses are occurring in, in some states already because they've just exhausted the number of people willing to, to take the vaccine. And I think, um, you know, there, with, and let's just be honest, with any medical intervention, uh, there's a, a small risk of an adverse reaction. And some people 
have a psychology against needles. Some people have a psychology against distrust in medicine. And those are all things we're going to have to work on. I think, though, the recent news about Johnson Johnson and more most previous to that, AstraZeneca vaccines causing blood clots is definitely concerning and, and will be followed up on by the full force of regulatory agencies. But bear in mind, your chances of having an adverse uh, outcome to SARS-CoV-2 infection are about 125 times more than having an adverse reaction to a vaccine. It's terrible for the people who have had those reactions, but it's something like six in, six individuals in seven million. You know, so it's terrible for all those people, and we got to do better. But um, you know, and people don't who have these emotional reactions to vaccine and medicine don't really respond to those numbers, right? So I just think it's a hard question. And I, I think it's a question of science literacy just for many things. Um, uh, and this speaks to the misinformation too, which finds opportunity in, in these, you know, in these areas where the vaccines have slightly failed or where there's mistrust sown already. And I, I just think, well, we should just keep doing what we're doing in terms of nature of science instruction. Science isn't perfect. Vaccines aren't perfect, but they're better than nothing and, and way better than these ones are wildly good. The SARS coronavirus 2 vaccines are 90% effective, whereas we lived happily with influenza vaccines. There were, you know, 30, 40, 50% effective, you know? So, um, if you're going out in the rain, take a raincoat, you know, <laughs> it's like, it's, to me, it's common sense, you know? So that why is the the are they recommending the vaccine the Johnson and Johnson vaccine be put on hold when it seems like it seems safer than any of the 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 medications you see advertised on TV with their litany of side effects afterwards is this just for PR and public confidence or is it actually concerning Well it's you know all these those Ads don't have those disclaimers because they like them. It's regulated, right? They have to put them on. <laughs> so the major concern is, of course, for all those individuals that are infected, but are, they're affected by an adverse reaction. But the erosion of public trust by a small event is worse in terms of continuing to give the virus new hosts by all the people who can't or because they're not eligible or because of uh, underlying conditions or because they just have a, a, a emotional or, or psychological problem with taking a, a vaccine. And this speaks back to the herd immunity question and nobody can really calculate what that is. And, but the, the best estimate I heard or the best sort of way to explain it is 60% sounds good because if the R not the transmission rate of the virus is three and that, that number is varied. That means for every person infected, you're infecting three others. If we immunize two of those potential new infections, we're taking them off the playing field, off the table for SARS coronavirus 2, leaving only one. So R0 goes to one. So every person infected only infects one more person. The virus spread is not growing. It's that sort of a steady state then. And that that doesn't sound great. I mean, I think coronavirus is going to be with us, like like influenza is with us. We've just we'll tame it down to that low level transmission. But there will always be new hosts. There's always going to be children, um, and hopefully we get the vaccines approved for children. Um, but there's always newborns, and there's always people who won't take it. And there's always the virus continuing to evolve, which we've seen in influenza for decades. So you think we are solidly on the path to this being a seasonal thing and not being eradicated like MERS? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think early hope and some of the uncertainty around SARS-CoV-2, you know, this notion that it was different, but we couldn't explain why, was tied to MERS going. MERS didn't really go extinct, though. SARS, SARS-1, I'll call it, but mm. I mean SARS-CoV, did go extinct. Um, MERS... There were cases until 2018. Uh, people think it went away in 2015, but there were still cases until 2018. So MERS might be clinking around out there. But this, yeah, SARS-CoV-2 was clearly different. I don't. It didn't show any seasonality, really. It, it, our behaviors drove, drove more the transmission of the virus and our lack of vaccines, our lack of any defense against it. And so we think of flu as seasonal. It may show some seasonality, uh, SARS-CoV-2, but... 
think of um, influenza H1N1. That actually emerged in April, where we're supposed to be coming out of flu season. So, mm. so with you said SARS-CoV-1 did go extinct, right? That lineage went extinct. This is the most important what thing. What made is, that one happen? It emerged from bats. And, um, no, but I mean, why did that go extinct? Because we have vaccines a, against it. No, that's a great question. That's what I thought. Uh, ran out of hosts in the countries. We didn't experience it so much in the U.S. So we, we don't think about it, but just good infection control. Uh, it was transmitting a lot between patient and healthcare workers, and um, in Toronto, for example, and they just they stomped. They were able to stomp it out. And in Beijing, there was you know panic in the streets. I mean, well, there was nobody in the streets. They just shut down Beijing, and so early re- responses. Um, um, okay. I think um, muted it quickly, uh, but the the point is, from an evolutionary perspective, all the cousins <laughs> of SARS-CoV one, one of which was MERS, one of which was SARS-CoV two. There's probably I don't know the number, but there are multiples of these things clinking around in bats all the time. And what happened with SARS-CoV two is one emerged that can that turned out to be incredibly transmissible and very well adapted to to human to human transmission and continues to adapt you know, through variants. Right, and that was a game changer. And what you know, we're worried about SARS-CoV three, SARS-CoV four, and anything else. I mean, we we've not even paid attention to the rest of the you know virosphere for a long time. So. That's what we got to start doing. You know? Do you think that so you were you were indicating that this um, this family lineage, <laughs> SARS and MERS and <laughs> SARS-CoV two, um, originated from bats, and the second one has also you know, the one that we're more focuses focusing on SARS-CoV two um, came from bats and the bat to human transmission. Do you think that there's my my question is twofold. Um, do you think that there are other completely different family lines that has nothing to do with a SARS-CoV um, that are coming from bats. And second part of that is, are there other animals that we also need to be thinking about that could have this potential transmission that we're just, that we haven't really focused on? Yeah, great question. So certainly bats are the most important host for these severe medically important coronaviruses, SARS, MERS, COVID-2. However, rodents have been the source of other coronaviruses. Animal to human transmission events have been recorded in the literature since the 60s and have been recorded in genomes since, you know, the I would say right after SARS. We, we started a sequence when I was at Ohio State, a lot of the agriculturally important coronaviruses. And in fact, a lot of them do come from cows and, and, and their cousins, uh, camels, in the case of MERS. Those coronaviruses infect, infect people, but they cause something akin to a common cold. And so there was never a lot of medical concern about them. So right, medically, who cares? Yeah, yeah. It's, and colds, are, you know, we call it a cold or we call it influenza-like illness, that one of the soapboxes I like to get on is we don't really know what causes those things. They're one of 30 potential things. Could be a rhinovirus, could be um, bacteria sometimes, and we never really diagnose the pathogen itself like we have begun to do with SARS-CoV-2 to delineate it from influenza and so forth. Um, I think that sort of personalized attack on on the the bug itself rather than the symptoms is going to be widely important uh, now. Hmm. And then we'll know more. We'll backtrack to the animal sources of these things. So that's a great great question and opens up an area of science I've been hoping to open up for a long time. Mm -hmm. How is, sorry, just sort of putting on this, this other question, how is this for those that aren't super well-read myself included um, (laughs) in terms of, what is the difference of, I'll just use the bat as an example, right? Sure. Bat to human transmission, as opposed to some of these other diseases that we see as carriers. For example, malaria uh, in mosquitoes, or you used, you said rodents. And I that immediately got me thinking, you know, uh, the Black Death or the Black Plague from yeah. centuries ago, which was brought in by rodents, but it wasn't from rodents it was you know the bugs on them and then it got to us like what is uh, how uh, you know talk to me like i'm five in terms of what does it mean 
to actually have this transmission to cross that barrier? And how is that different than these other sort of insect driven yes. um, issues? It all matters. It's It comes down to the nature of the biology. Um, so pathogens are just, they're all just hitch and ride, right? And so <laughs> the bats are good at flying these things around and the bat immune system, and this is a whole nother area too, seems to be able to fight them off or run so hot, so to speak, that they don't get uh, infected or and I think they've even reduced their immune repertoire. So they're, they're just flying around happy with full of viruses. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's true. There's Nipah, Hendra. Don't handle bats, whatever you do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. Gross and cool. Yeah, well, it's biology. Yeah. Um, don't go to lunch with biologists either. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, so that, you know, the bat question is probably people going into caves and collecting guano. I, I guess it's va- valuable, maybe eating them. I've heard of, you know, bat consumption on the, on the world. And then let's switch to, you know, insect borne mm-hmm. diseases. Mosquitoes are worse than bats, right? They right. cause more death and destruction than, you know, than almost anything on earth in terms of malaria and flaviviruses, uh, Zika and dengue and so forth. Um, and the mosquito, the female mosquito essentially bites your friend and takes some of their blood. And if your friend has the uh, malaria pl- uh, parasite called plasmodium in it, it's the, the genus plasmodium. It's a, it's a little thing called an AP complexin parasite. Um, then the, that female mosquito goes on to you and bites you and then injects that plasmodium into you. And then you get malaria, right? And in terms of uh, bacterial pathogens like plague, um, you know, living close to to rats, and I suppose you know historically rats were getting into food stores, uh, grain and so forth, and uh, people were eating that um, and uh, getting infected. And then once it gets into people, you're handling the body and so forth, and all, that goes back to all these hygiene issues. Bacteria are are, are terrible too. So we should really. You know, I, I know this is not what you're saying, but, you know, part of one of the things that I could hear you saying is um, be vegan and wear a mosquito suit all the time. Like, like, <laughs> like if we want to protect ourselves from these things, like that's. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, well, what's interesting about malaria is we had it in the United States. We had yellow fever in the United States. And so we don't have to be personally hypersensitive or hypersensitive to what's around us if we do reasonable public health, like control standing water, um, have screens on our windows, uh, things like, simple things like that that lead to mosquito control. And, you know, they're the most horrible things. I I am a, you know, from a religious standpoint um, and from a, you know, perhaps a standpoint of you know, I believe that things have a place and there's domino effects when you when there's extinctions. You know, we don't fully know understand the ramifications of things, but I think the world would be better without mosquitoes. I'm just I I, I see only positives from that. Um I see nothing good from the mosquito. Um and I, I how will we recreate you know, Jurassic Park without mosquitoes? I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I I then I can become a paleontologist. So much. And I'm Yeah. That's right. No, you'd just be a biologist at that point. I'm and I'm one oh, of yeah, those yeah. people that yeah. doesn't get like a cute little mosquito bike, you know, like, oh, it itches a little bit. It's like it becomes a welt. And it just like my whole like is yeah. awful. So is there any purpose to mosquitoes that that you could shed light on? Uh no, you people have brought up what you have is, you know, why don't we just extinct them? Yeah. And there are there are ways to do it. Uh I don't think that would be successful. Mosquitoes are. <laughs> we're very good at extincting. Yeah, yeah <laughs> we're good at extincting Selective some things. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but but the people would argue that you're taking away the food source for other other organisms like our friends the bats. Okay. Also, our friends the fish. And well, can't we just make more flies then? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um. One would ex- one would say, look at Australia. Every animal <laughs> transportation yeah. or eradication attempt is gone awry. You know. So, yeah. <laughs> so I want to ask a question about 
the uh, the variants I keep hearing about. Sure. And a question born out of ignorance, because I keep hearing these acronyms thrown around and these different variants of places from the UK, from South Africa, from Brazil. There was that one in, what, the Netherlands that was coming through Mink, mm -hmm. and we were all worried about that one. And I... I hear people saying, oh, don't worry, the vaccine still seems to be fairly effective against it. But here in Pennsylvania, we have one of the highest uh, the highest rates of transmission right now. We are, I think, in the top three worst states right now for new cases, Muscle which is super exciting. <laughs> um, can you shed some light on the on some of these variants, on the development of them? What do you have your eye on in particular? Yeah, sure. So when we had those, you know, spikes uh, in late 2020, early 2021, there were a lot of cases. And every time the virus is replicating itself, it'll make mistakes, right? And a lot of those mistakes and mutations will produce viral lineages that are not as successful in transmitting themselves as they're, you know, they're cousins, but some will. And so uh, UK variant sh not only was different by, by about 15 mutations, but also started to become predominant in the UK. And those are the two kind of harbingers or, or, or indicators of, of a successful variant, right? And what's interesting about the UK variant, though, is the vaccines are still pretty effective against it. It's the South Africa variant, which shares some of the same mutations as the UK variant, and especially the Brazilian variant, that shows some ability to not be neutralized by the first, by the antibodies produced in your body by the first versions of the vaccines. Okay. However, remember these vaccines were 90% effective uh, against what we call the wild type, the original SARS-CoV-2. So they had some ground to give, and they're still certainly a, a effective. The number of breakthrough cases where people who were beyond um, two weeks since their second Pfizer or Moderna shot, for example, um, I think in the United States, something like 5,000 total uh, people have been infected. Um, but that's a very small number against, you know, 40,000 in, you know, successful injections, right? So they do occur. Um, nobody ever said these vaccines were perfect. They're slightly less perfect uh, against variants, but we do have to be vigilant. I mean, there are stories out of Brazil that they thought, not by vaccination because they've had a, a terrible rollout, but in the city of Manaus in the Amazon, they thought that um, they had herd immunity just because 60% of the people have had coronavirus just because of transmission. And the variant emerged and, you know, it's not going away. This is just SARS coronavirus 2 and evolution doing its job. Uh, and all those people got reinfected by the Brazilian variant. So Oof. there was, yeah, mm -hmm. so it's just been ravaging in Brazil. And we don't want that here. And, and um, I'm not surprised the UK variant got around. The border was open. You could fly to London and back, especially post-Brexit, right? The uh, interesting thing here is, too, where there are a few cases of uh, Brazilian variant, but they've been all travel cases and stopped. Um, and South Africa variant, they say it occurs here in South Carolina um, and other states. I looked at the original data, and it's not very good. So I'm worried. I'm vigilant. And What does that mean? I'm sorry. What, is, what does not very good mean? They sequenced the virus, and it was uh -huh. an incomplete sequence and some of the key okay. mutations were not characterized they had say say these things are characterized on 15 mutations they had eight of them and they, uh -huh. they called it as good enough so okay so so it's not it's not that oh no the data is showing bad it's saying the data was bad the data was <laughs> like it incomplete. wasn't good science yeah yeah so okay, i you know i'll take that back tomorrow if, the, if more data comes out and it's all good uh but these things can there, it there's also domestic variants occurring too. Um, there's a variant they call the California variant. There was an Ohio or Midwest variant. And we're watching all of those. Um, vaccines seem to continue to work against those, even though they're transmitting uh, uh, a lot. So uh, our domestic variants are not quite as worrisome as these uh, originally foreign variants. Mm. And all these things have overlap. So um, to call them a, you know, a unique entity is, is, is a little bit 
strange. They're, they're nested sets of mutations, so to speak. You know? I just wanted to follow up and ask, do we know uh, why the vaccines work against some of the variants and not others? Is that still just like totally mysterious to us? Or is there something that people are finding like this is why it's sort of effective? Uh, the key part of the spike protein that binds to your cells called the receptor binding domain. Um, those are sort of the, the business end of the virus and the antibodies produced by the original vaccine against those um, are not as effective as um, against the new variants who have modified that receptor binding domain. So they're, they're, those new variants are modifying their business end to get into your cells, um, even if, though you've been vaccinated. Okay, that makes sense. So it's just that some mutations are like closer they're in the, the right spot form than the, others. Well, yeah, and, and they're in the right spot. They've hit on. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's one called E44K, which seems to open up a lot of uh, infectious territory for the virus. Um, and then there's one called N501Y that does the same. And, um, and some of these things have to happen in sets, uh, like one has to change to compensate for the loss of fitness of the virus might work a little bad if it only had that one, but if it has two, it works even better. So it's a, it's a complicated um, choreography that the virus does through evolution. Yeah, that makes sense. And then I guess one more follow-up, because I know Rachel Hall has a question, uh, is, you know, if if some of these variants are so different that the vaccines we have now aren't really doing it uh, like do you think that in the future we will be able to uh formulate a vaccine that can cover all variants or are we going to end up with like multiple vaccines to cover different kinds of variants and it'll just be like extra shots every year <laughs> yeah there's a couple questions there so one is the first thing is the vaccines are good uh, they remain good and effective against most variants um the <clears throat> most important thing is even if you're reinfected, you have some immune protection and the people who are reinfected, the small fraction that are reinfected are not going into the intensive care and are not dying. Uh, and so uh, you may have a, a mild uh, experience rather than just being immune, immunologically naive, being re be infected post-inoculation, but you're not going to die, right? It, it, I, uh, and you're not going to go to the hospital. We. So that that's the most important thing, mm -hmm. um, and I, that's that's the key message. So it's not game over with a variant, yeah. But it's an ongoing game, right? Uh, and uh, an ongoing struggle. And there's a couple of things going on. If we want to roll out, there's a window of opportunity to roll out more and more uh, vaccinations before the virus continues to vary in a way that we can't combat. And then also back to lab, right? Uh, studies are being done to reprint the vaccine. These vaccines are, especially the mRNA vaccines, they're amazing. You basically just specify um, what kind of protein you're through, what kind of mRNA you want to make, which is the instructions for your body to make the protein for your, anti your antibodies to respond to. So they can just say, okay, we see you variant, we're printing you out, and we're going to put that in people now, you know, so... Hmm. So that that's that's just tremendous. I mean, we are we are incrementally winning this arms race um, if we do all things right. If we prepare and we do all our due diligence and, and people listen, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> that's a big. You can hear all of our cynicisms in that laugh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is really cool, though, and like really, you know, we we are much better prepared than we were. Yeah. yeah, six months ago. It's just amazing. And now, I mean, I'll I'll go on for just a minute more. There's talk of preparing mRNA technologies against cancer, preparing mm -hmm. mRNA technologies against all kinds of other uh, infectious agents. So this, Very although cool. as terrible as this was, the technological spinoff could be tremendous. And, you know, vaccines and infectious disease were, were not a well- funded 
enterprise for a long time. And now we've learned our, our lesson the hard way. It was in the seventies. I think the, you know, at least the American medical enterprise said, you know, cancer is where it's at. And we think infectious disease is pretty much whipped and that's completely not true. You know, so. so is it because of the MRNA technology? Is that what makes the, these vaccines so effective? I mean, you talked about like even historically the level the percentage of what 90 to 95% effective is just mind boggling compared yeah. to historically with vaccines. Is it because of that technology? Well, bear, bear in mind the, the adenovirus, which is also a, a relatively newly employed technology too, were also very effective. So much of, you know, Johnson Johnson was one shot at 76%. Um, I think we had the advantage of at the time, fighting one variant, whereas hmm. with influenza, there's multiple circulating variants okay. all the time. It's been around, you know, for, for a long time. Whereas this SARS-CoV-2 was newly emergent; it looked like one thing at the time the decisions were being made. Whereas influenza, it's basically a committee decision. And if nowadays we we design a vaccine against four of them, um, and um, it's a lot of guesswork. But this was not guesswork. We, you know. The MRIs were printed against the SARS-CoV-2 that came out of Wuhan. And you know, so, so now they're well, going to have to print them against the one coming out of South Africa and the one coming out of you know, okay. Britain. I should so point that. out for those um, at, at home who are not super familiar with the way that vaccines have worked, and you can feel free to correct me um, because I'm sure I'll be wrong, but the way that flu vaccines have worked is, you know, basically you, they try to figure out ahead of time, which ones are going to be the dominant uh, strains and they have to isolate those strains and then breed those strains in isolation and breed a variant that is less deadly and then kill it and then put it into egg whites. Yes. Right. And like that whole process takes months and months and months and tons of eggs for some reason it i think people still don't realize how uh in some ways primitive the technology is whereas the mrna vaccine contains the uh the information for your body to do the creating of the thing that it wants to have resistance against and so we have the information about the spike protein at the end we tell your arm muscle make that spike protein your immune system goes, what is this mess? We need to kill this. <laughs> and sleep. And then a couple of weeks later, it's like, it's back again? All right, now we really need to remember this. And then whenever it sees the spike protein chilling on a coronavirus, it goes and eats it up. Um, yeah. And there's yeah. no eggs that have to be used. Excellent. Uh, with the, the one caveat that um, cell culture is now used for a lot of uh, influenza mm. vaccine production. So... Um, but I would, I would bet money that, you know, we see mRNA vaccines for, for influenza in the near future too, and other, mm. other viruses. So, you know, from a genetic standpoint, is there, I am really trying to understand why this technology took until now to be used, right? There's, there's, I, I think there's sort of a, maybe maybe a general misconception in the overall populace um, that, you know, this mRNA, it's brand new and we've, we've never seen it before. And it's, it's this newfangled thing when it's, there's this woman, um, Caitlin Carrico, and I might be mispronouncing her name. I have only read it. She's been doing this for 30 years. So why, not just a why now, but why not then? Like what? What has changed in the genetics field? What has changed in epidemiology that has said, "Sure, let's try it now." I think the crisis, um, and you know, the business model wasn't there before, and the crisis drove for there to be a business model for a a, a rapidly developed vaccine that was tunable. Um, and we put enough money into it that we didn't bank on just one technology. So nobody, nobody said. It's mRNA or nothing. They they also did adenovirus technology and yeah. What if we'd done this 20, 30 years ago? Like what if, because you're saying, I mean, one of the statements you just made was that there's a potential now that we've seen the efficacy and that we've poured money into it that 
um, we might transition from the influenza vaccine that we all know and love and hate um, and take, <laughs> putting that one out there, to this completely new way of understanding it. Why wouldn't we have done that 20 years ago? Uh, conservatism, I mean, getting getting things approved is, is, is hard. Uh, you know, vaccines aren't, I, you know, I'm not an expert in this field, but I understand that it's not a great business. It does take a lot of government um, influence and incentives. Uh, there's this agency called BARDA, B-A-R-D-A, that, that their role is to protect the country by making government investments in pharmaceutical development such that we are prepared for this. Uh, and I imagine agencies like that will become ever more important in how we run the country. So, so can I ask you something just uh, for clarification with the fact that we, at the very beginning of this, when we realized we need to develop and produce and, and distribute vaccines to beat this thing, were the ideas already there well before this of mRNA technology is the way we should go in the future? Or was this a, we need all hands on deck, whatever technology you have, you better use it? Yeah, the latter uh, in this case. But this was, you know, hopefully a hundred year flood. Um, all these technologies existed on paper or or even in the case of uh, adenovirus vector technology, it was used in the gene therapy field. And there was a death of a patient, and so it got taken off the shelf um, because that, mm. that that was recently resurrected in, in terms of vaccines. Okay. Mm. But mRNA technology, I'm sorry, you may have said it earlier. What else is it, was it used for prior to this? Because obviously it's existed, but for medical treatments, has it been used for other things? I'm not aware of any. Uh, I, I could be wrong okay. about that, but um, we use it every day to make, you know, to transcribe our <laughs> DNA into proteins. Uh, so right. You're doing it right now. Yeah. So <laughs> what we've, we've sort of had sort of a, a round table Q and a today, uh, which I really appreciate that you've been able to be here for Daniel and, and allowed us to have this. Um, we're limited by what we know. So are there things that you want to tell us and all those listening, things that we just didn't even know to ask? Yeah. Um, please, you know, seek a vaccine if you're able and you can, your physician and, you know, the regu regulation allows you to. Uh, you're, taking, you're taking advantage of tremendous technology that's not going to only, you know, make your um, health better, but everybody around you. That's what's amazing about, you know, vaccines. So I would like to see this starting to be part of, and part of good citizenship. And something that we touched upon in prep that we haven't really gotten to is the, the threat of misinformation. Um, uh, and so I think also it's a matter of good citizenship not to forward wonky things. Uh, you know, it's a free country. You can say whatever you want, but, you know, don't – I would like people to care about their reputations online and then and, and maybe try to check multiple sources and – or ask questions and and uh, not only we having this done to us by foreign adversaries who for whatever reason want to slow down our rollout or want to diminish the quality of our vaccine or the perceived quality of our vaccine so they can sell theirs um, we're doing starting to do it to ourselves which is, which is a shame yeah. so we're starting to misinform ourselves for whatever reason what have been some of your biggest surprises I know you talked about this a little bit earlier, but over the past year, like things have just really surprised you about your field, scientific community in general, the public. I mean, just. Yes. Um, I would say three things. How big SARS-CoV-2 was versus its uh, predecessors, MERS and SARS-CoV. Two, our lack of ability to see what was happening and we saw it in China and we didn't believe it and uh, China and Italy and not take it seriously um, that American arrogance or however you want to put it which I hated to say I wouldn't have said it in 2019 but the fact that this wasn't going to happen to us uh, was mm. just surprising and then how bad it was and how we thought we and how we couldn't hold the fort right we thought we were through this and people are impatient and they relax their behaviors and um, 
now that we even have the vaccines, people don't want to accept them. And, and we have this window of opportunity now, a real window of opportunity. That's not, not even, you know, terrible. You're not, if you have a vaccine, you can see your grandkids, you can, you know, you can circulate, you can do all the fun things you want. It's just, and people are not accepting it. And so all this is a, it's going to be an ongoing struggle, I think, on multiple fronts. What's your most optimistic projection for what 2021 will look like for the world? <laughs> I, I think it's going to matter everywhere. It, it, it's going to be patchy. You know, uh, I think you know, our economy is already recovering, I think, through tremendous stimulus. I don't know how long that's going to last. I'm then digressing into a different field here. But, <laughs> um, uh, but we, have the, you know, we have the tools to get out of this thing. We just need to bear down and use them. They're pacing the world where it's going to be bad for a long time. And Brazil has a terrible rollout. Um, you know, these places that bought vaccines from China and Russia may get them, may not get them. Um, you know, they may work fine, but they can't produce in the numbers that need to be produced. Uh, you know, we, we definitely could uh, roll out some of our surplus once we get to that point uh, to, to other countries. And we, we shall. But that's going to that's going to take time. So I think um, we're going to be okay. I think there's going to be pockets of the world that are not going to be okay for a very long time. And then how does that play in for us? Don't don't count on traveling anytime soon. Yeah, <laughs> enjoy go to the Grand Canyon or something. <laughs> like you're not going to yeah you're not going to uh, Asia or or um, you're not going to the Olympics, you're not going to Europe anytime soon. You can. Yeah, I feel like but, the impact on international travel yeah. is going to last for a long time. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I just feel like it's there's yeah. potential for that for several years. Yeah. yeah. So. But I can go to a Phillies game this summer. <laughs> sure. <laughs> if you wanted. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is the Phillies. Right? I mean. Yeah, I, I think we'll get back to normal domestic activities, including school in the fall, you know. Including drunken karaoke in a smoky bar. Uh, just don't. I, I said this on another <laughs> podcast. I think individually packaged peanuts are going to be <laughs> advisable. Wow. Oh, you should already see the variety in individually packaged communion kits. Yeah, they yeah. have just in the past year exploded in variety and yeah. flavors and shapes and sizes. And we're all about that individual packaging now. Yeah. Thank you again. Thanks yeah. um, for taking time to, uh, to to spend with us to answer our questions, um, to help illuminate some of our pockets of ignorance. I hope that things will really roll out as as well as you uh, you make them seem, at least here. You were not very optimistic for the rest of the world, but I hope you're wrong about that. Um, <laughs> though I doubt you are. You've been right about everything so far. <laughs> if only. <laughs> Well, thanks for having me. It's really important work that you're doing. So thanks very much. Thank you. All right.